Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight, and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 2, Chapters 4-6 to of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. In the last chapters, Kitty was instructed by her doctor to visit abroad. In tonight's story, we find out more about Anna and the shortcomings of her social circle. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 4 The highest Petersburg society is essentially one. In it, everyone knows everyone else. Everyone even visits everyone else. But this great set has its subdivisions. Anna Arkadyevna Karenina had friends and close ties in three different circles of this highest society. One circle was her husband's government official set, consisting of his colleagues and subordinates, brought together in the most various and capricious manner, and belonging to different social strata. Anna found it difficult now to recall the feeling of almost awe-stricken reverence which she had at first entertained for those persons. Now she knew all of them, as people know one another in a country town. She knew their habits and their weaknesses, and where the shoe pinched each of them. She knew their relations with one another, knew who was from whom, and how each one maintained his position, and where they agreed and disagreed. But the circle of political, masculine interests had never interested her, in spite of the Countess Lydia Ivanova's influence, and she avoided it. Another little set with which Anna was in close relation 
was the one by means of which Alexei Alexandrovich had made his career. The centre of this circle was the Countess Lydia Ivanova. It was a set made up of elderly, ugly, benevolent and godly women, and clever, learned and ambitious men. One of the clever people belonging to the set had called it the conscience of Petersburg society. Alexei Alexandrovich had the highest esteem for this circle, and Anna, with her special gift for getting on with everyone, had in the early days of her life in Petersburg made friends in this circle also. Now, since her return from Moscow, she had come to feel this set insufferable. It seemed to her that both she and all of them were insincere, and she felt so bored and ill at ease in that world that she went to see the Countess Lydia Ivanova as little as possible. The third circle with which Anna had ties with was preeminently the fashionable world, the world of balls, of dinners, of sumptuous dresses, the world that hung on the court with one hand so as to avoid sinking to the level of the demimonde. For the demimonde, the members of that fashionable world believed that they despised, though their tastes were not merely similar, but in fact identical. Her connection with this circle was kept up through Princess Betsy Svertskaya, her cousin's wife who had an income of a hundred and twenty thousand roubles and who had taken great fancy to Anna ever since she came out, showed her much attention and drew her into her set, making fun of Countess Lydia Ivanova's coterie. When I'm old and ugly, I'll be the same, Betsy used to say, but for a pretty young woman like you, it's early days for that house of charity. Anna had at first avoided as far as she could Princess Vertskaya's world, because it necessitated an expenditure beyond her means, and besides, in her heart, she preferred the first circle. But since her visit to Moscow, she had done quite the contrary. She avoided her serious-minded friends and went out into the fashionable world. There, she met Vronsky and experienced an agitating joy at those meetings. She met Vronsky specially often at Betsy's, for Betsy was a Vronsky by birth and his cousin. Vronsky was everywhere where he had a chance of meeting Anna and speaking to her, when he could, of his love. But every time she met him, there surged up in her heart that same feeling of quickened life that came upon her that day in the railway carriage when she saw him for the first time. She was conscious herself that her delight sparkled in her eyes and curved her lips into a smile and she could not quench the expression of delight. At first, 
Anna sincerely believed that she was displeased with him for daring to pursue her. Soon after her return from Moscow, on arriving at the soiree where she had expected to meet him and not finding him there, she realized distinctly from the rush of disappointment that she had been deceiving herself and that this pursuit was not merely not distasteful to her but that it made the whole interest of her life. The celebrated singer was singing for the second time, and all the fashionable world was in the theatre. Vronsky, seeing his cousin from his stall in the front row, did not wait till the entract, but went to her box. Why didn't you come to dinner? she said to him. I marvel at the second sight of lovers, she added with a smile, so that no one but he could hear. She wasn't there, but come after the opera. Vronsky looked inquiringly at her. She nodded. He thanked her by a smile and sat down beside her. But how I remember your jeers, continued Princess Betsy who took a peculiar pleasure in following up this passion to a successful issue. What becomes of it all? You're caught, my dear boy. That's my one desire, to be caught, answered Vronsky, with his serene, good-humoured smile. If I complain of anything, it's only that I'm not caught enough to tell the truth. I begin to lose hope. Why, whatever hope can you have? said Betsy, offended on behalf of her friend. But in her eyes there were gleams of light that betrayed that she understood perfectly and precisely as he did what hope he might have. None whatever, said Vronsky, laughing and showing his even row of teeth. Excuse me, he added, taking an opera glass out of her hand and proceeding to scrutinize over her bare shoulder the row of boxes facing them. I'm afraid I'm becoming ridiculous. He was very well aware that he ran no risk of being ridiculous in the eyes of Betsy or any other fashionable people. He was very well aware that in their eyes, the position of an unsuccessful lover of a girl, or of any woman free to marry, might be ridiculous. But the position of a man pursuing a married woman, and, regardless of everything, staking his life on drawing her into adultery, had something fine and grand about it, and can never be ridiculous. And so it was, with a proud smile under his moustache, that he lowered the opera glass and looked at his cousin. But why was it you didn't come to dinner, she said, admiring him. I must tell you about that. I was busily employed, and doing what, do you suppose? I'll give you a hundred guesses. A thousand. You'd never guess. I've been recounselling a husband with a man who'd insulted his wife. 
Yes, really. Well, did you succeed? Almost. You really must tell me about it, she said, getting up. Come to me in the next entract. I can't. I'm going to the French theatre. From Nilsson, Betsy queried in horror, though she could not herself have distinguished Nilsson's voice from any other chorus. Can't help it. I've an appointment there, all to do with my mission of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Theirs in the kingdom of heaven, said Betsy, vaguely recollecting she had heard some similar saying from someone. Very well then, sit down and tell me what it's all about. And she sat down again. Chapter 5 This is rather indiscreet, but it's so good, it's an awful temptation to tell the story, said Vronsky, looking at her with his laughing eyes. I'm not going to mention any names. But I shall guess, so much the better. Well, listen. Two festive young men were driving. Officers of your regiment, of course. I didn't say they were officers. Two young men who had been lunching. In other words, drinking. Possibly. They were driving on their way to dinner with a friend in the most festive state of mind, and they beheld a pretty woman in a hired sledge. She overtakes them, looks round at them, and, so they fancy away, nods to them and laughs. They of course follow her. They gallop at full speed. To their amazement, the fair one alights at the entrance of the very house to which they were going. The fair one darts upstairs to the top story. They get a glimpse of red lips under a short veil and exquisite little feet. You describe it with such feeling that I fancy you must be one of the two. And after what you said just now, well... The young men go into their comrade. He was giving a farewell dinner. There, they certainly did drink a little too much, as one always does at farewell dinners. And at dinner, they inquired who lived at the top in that house. No one knows, only their host's valet, in answer to their inquiry whether any young ladies are living in the top floor answered that there were a great many of them about there. After dinner, the two young men go into their host's study and write a letter to the unknown fair one. They compose an ardent epistle, a declaration in fact, and they carry the letter upstairs themselves so as to elucidate whatever might appear not perfectly intelligible in the letter. Why are you telling me these horrible stories? Well, they ring. A maid servant opens the door. They hand her the letter and assure the maid that they're both so in love 
that they'll die on the spot at the door. The maid, stupefied, carries in their messages. All at once, a gentleman appears, with whiskers like sausages, as red as a lobster, announces that there is no one living in the flat except his wife, and sends them both about their business. How do you know he has whiskers like sausages, as you say? Ah, you shall hear. I've just been to make peace with them. Well, and what then? That's the most interesting part of the story. It appears that it's a happy couple, a government clerk and his lady. The government clerk lodges a complaint, and I become a mediator, and such a mediator. I assure you Talarand couldn't hold a candle to me. Why, where was the difficulty? Ah, uh, you shall hear. We apologise in due form. We are in despair. We entreat forgiveness for the unfortunate misunderstanding. The government clerk with the sausages begins to melt, but he too desires to express his sentiments. And as soon as ever he begins to express them, he begins to get hot and say nasty things. And again I'm obliged to trot out all my diplomatic talents. I allowed that their conduct was bad, but I urged him to take into consideration their heedlessness, their youth. Then, too, the young men had only just been lunching together. You understand, they regret it deeply and beg you to overlook their misbehaviour. The government clerk was softened once more. I consent, Count and am ready to overlook it. But you perceive that my wife, my wife's respectable woman, has been exposed to the persecution and insults and effrontery of young upstarts, scoundrels. And you must understand, the young upstarts are present at the while, and I have to keep the peace between them. Again, I call out all my diplomacy, and again, as soon as the thing was about at an end, our friend the government clerk gets hot and red, and his sausages stand on end. And once more, I launch out into diplomatic wiles. Ah, he must tell you this story, said Betsy, laughing, to a lady who came into her box. He has been making me laugh so. Well, bon chance, she added, giving Vronsky one finger of the hand in which she held her fan, and with a shrug of her shoulders, she twitched down the bodice of her gown that had worked up, so as to be duly naked as she moved towards the footlight into the light of the gas and the sight of all eyes. Vronsky drove to the French theatre, where he really had to see the colonel of his regiment, who never missed a single performance there. He wanted to see him, to report on the result of his mediation, which had occupied and amused him for the last three days. Petrisky, who he liked, 
was implicated in the affair, and the other culprit was a capital fellow and a first-rate comrade who had lately joined the regiment, the young Prince Kedrov, and what was most important, the interests of the regiment were involved in it too. Both the young men were in Vronsky's company. The colonel of the regiment was waited upon by the government clerk, Venden, with a complaint against his officers, who had insulted his wife. His young wife, so Venden told the story, he had been married half a year, was at church with her mother, and suddenly overcome by indisposition, arising from her interesting condition. She could not remain standing. She drove home in the first sledge, a smart-looking one. She came across on the spot the officers set off in pursuit of her. She was alarmed, and feeling still more unwell, ran up the staircase home. Venden himself, on returning from his office, heard a ring at their bell and voices, went out, and seeing the intoxicated officers with a letter, he had turned them out. He asks for exemplary punishment. Yes, it's all very well, said the colonel to Vronsky, whom he had invited to come and see him. Petrisky's becoming impossible. Not a week goes by without some scandal. This government clerk won't let it drop. He'll go on with the thing. Vronsky saw all the thanklessness of the business, and that there could be no question of a duel in it, that everything must be done to soften the clerk and hush the matter up. The colonel had called in Vronsky just because he knew him to be an honourable and intelligent man, and, more than all, a man who cared for the honour of the regiment. They talked it over and decided that Petrisky and Kedrov must go with Vronsky to Vedens to apologise. The colonel and Vronsky were both fully aware that Vronsky's name and rank would be sure to contribute greatly to the softening of the injured husband's feelings. And these two influences were not, in fact, without effect, though the result remained, as Vronsky had described, uncertain. On reaching the French theatre, Vronsky retired to the foyer with the colonel and reported to him his success, or non-success. The colonel, thinking it all over, made up his mind not to pursue the matter further, but then for his own satisfaction, proceeded to cross-examine Vronsky about his interview, and it was a long while before he could restrain his laughter as Vronsky described how the government clerk, after subsiding for a while, would suddenly flare up again as he recalled the details, and how Vronsky, at the last half-word of consolation, skillfully manoeuvred a retreat, shoving Petrisky out before him. It's a disgraceful story, but killing. Kedrov really can't fight the gentleman. Was he so awfully hot? He commented, laughing. But what do you say to Claire today? She's marvellous, he went on, speaking of a new French actress. However often you see her, 
Every day she's different. It's only the French who can do that. Chapter 6 Princess Betsy drove home from the theatre without waiting for the end of the last act. She had only just time to go into her dressing room, sprinkle her long, pale face with powder, rub it, set her dress to rights, and order tea in the big drawing room, when one after the other, carriages drove up to her huge house. Her guests stepped out at the wide entrance, and the stout porter, who used to read the newspapers in the mornings behind the glass door, to the edification of the passers-by, noiselessly opened the immense door, letting the visitors pass by him into the house. Almost at the same instant, the hostess, with freshly arranged coiffure and freshened face, walked in at one door and her guests at the other door of the drawing room, a large room with dark walls, drowny rugs, and brightly lighted tables, gleaming with lights of candles, white cloth, silver samovar, and transparent china tea things. Chairs were sat at the aid of the footman, moving almost imperceptibly about the room. The party settled itself, divided into two groups, one round the samovar near the hostess, the other at the opposite end of the drawing room round the handsome wife of the ambassador, in black velvet with sharply defined black eyebrows. In both groups, conversation wavered, as it always does, for the first few minutes, broken up by meetings, greetings, offers of tea, and as it were, feeling about for something to rest upon. She's an exceptionally good actress, one can see she studied Kolbach, said a diplomatic man in the group round the ambassador's wife. Did you notice how she fell down? Oh, please, don't let us talk about Nilsson. No one can possibly say anything new about her, said a fat, red-faced, flaxen-headed lady, without eyebrows and chinion wearing an old silk dress. This was Princess Miyakaya, noted for her simplicity and the roughness of her manners, and nicknamed Enfant Terrible. Princess Miyakaya, sitting in the middle between the two groups and listening to both, took part in the conversation, first of one and then the other. Three people have used that very phrase about callback to me today, just as though they had made a compact about it, and I can't see why they liked that remark so. The conversation was cut short by this observation, and a new subject had to be thought of again. Do tell me something amusing, but not spiteful, said the ambassador's wife a great proficient in the art of that elegant conversation called by the English small talk. She addressed the attache, who was at a loss now what to begin upon. They say that that's a difficult task, but nothing's amusing that isn't spiteful, 
he began with a smile. But I'll try. Get me a subject. It all lies in the subject. If a subject's given, it's easy to spin something round it. I often think that the celebrated talkers of the last century would have found it difficult to talk cleverly now. Everything clever is so stale. That has been said long ago, interrupted the ambassador's wife, laughing. The conversation began amiably, but just because it was too amiable, it came to a stop again. They had to have recourse to the sure, never-failing topic, gossip. Don't you think there's something Louis Quince about Kushkovich, he said, glancing towards a handsome, fair-haired young man standing at the table. Oh yes, he's in the same style as the drawing room, and that's why he's here so often. The conversation was maintained, since it rested on allusions to what could not be talked of in that room. That is to say, of the relations of Tushkevich with their hostess. Round the samovar and the hostess, the conversation had been meanwhile vacillating in just the same way between three inevitable topics. The latest piece of public news, the theatre, and scandal. It too came finally to rest on the last topic, that is, ill-natured gossip. Have you heard the Malticheva woman, the mother, not the daughter, has ordered a costume in diable rose colour? Nonsense. No, that's too lovely. I wonder that with her sense, for she's not a fool, you know, but she doesn't see how funny she is. Everyone had something to say in censure or ridicule of the luckless Madame Multicheva, and the conversation crackled merrily, like a bundle of firewood. The husband of Princess Betsy, a good-natured, fat man, an ardent collector of engravings, hearing that his wife had visitors, came into the drawing-room before going to his club. Stepping noiselessly over the thick rugs, he went up to the Princess Miyakaya. How do you like Nilsson? he asked. Oh, how can you steal upon anyone like that? How you startled me, she responded. Please don't talk to me about the opera. You know nothing about music. I'd better meet you on your own ground and talk about your Majolica and engravings. Come now, what treasure have you been buying lately at the old curiosity shops? Would you like me to show you? But you don't understand such things. Oh, do show me. I've been learning about them at those. What's their names? The bankers. They've some wonderful. Splendid engravings. They showed them to us. Why, have you been at the Schutzbergs? asked the hostess from the samovar. Yes, monsieur. They asked my husband and me to dinner, 
and told us the sauce at that dinner cost a hundred pounds, said Princess Miyakaya, speaking loudly, and conscious everyone was listening. And very nasty sauce it was, some green mess. We had to ask them, and I made them sauce for eighteen pence, and everybody was very much pleased with it. I can't run to hundred-pound sauces. She's unique, said the lady of the house. Marvellous, said someone. The sensation produced by Princess Miyakai's speech was always unique, and the secret of the sensation she produced lay in the fact that though she spoke not always appropriately, as now, she said simple things with some sense in them. In the society in which she lived, such plain statements produced the effect of wittiest epigram. Princess Miyakaya could never see why it had that effect, but she knew it had, and took advantage of it. As everyone had been listening while Princess Miyakaya spoke, and so the conversation round the ambassador's wife had dropped, Princess Betsy tried to bring the whole party together, and turned to the ambassador's wife. Will you really not have tea? You should come over here by us. No, we're very happy here, the ambassador's wife responded with a smile, and she went on with the conversation that had been begun. It was a very agreeable conversation. They were criticising the Karenins, husband and wife. Anna is quite changed since her stay in Moscow. There's something strange about her, said her friend. The great change is that she's brought back with her the shadow of Alexei Vorontsky, said the ambassador's wife. Well, what of it? There's a fable of Grimm's about a man without a shadow, a man who's lost in his shadow, and that's his punishment for something. I never could understand how it was a punishment, but a woman must dislike being without a shadow. Yes, but women with a shadow usually come to a bad end, said Anna's friend. Bad luck to your tongue said Princess Miyakaya suddenly. Madame Karenina's a splendid woman. I don't like her husband, but I like her very much. Why don't you like her husband? He's such a remarkable man, said the ambassador's wife. My husband said there are few statesmen like him in Europe. And my husband tells me just the same, but I don't believe it said Princess Miyakaya. If our husbands didn't talk to us, we should see the facts as they are. Alexei Alexandrovich, to my thinking, is simply a fool. I say it in a whisper, but doesn't it really make everything make sense? Before, when I was told to consider him clever, I kept looking for his ability, and thought myself a fool for not seeing it. But directly I said, he's a fool, though only in a whisper. Everything's explained, isn't it? 
how spiteful you are today. Not a bit. I'd no other way out of it. One of the two had to be a fool. And, well, you know one can't say that of oneself. No one is satisfied with his fortune, and everyone is satisfied with his wit. The attache repeated the French saying. That's just it. Just it, Princess Miyakaya turned to him. But the point is that I won't abandon Anna to your mercies. She's so nice, so charming. How can she help it if they're all in love with her and follow her about like shadows? Oh, I had no idea of blaming her for it, Anna's friend said in self-defense. If no one follows us about like a shadow, that's no proof that we've any right to blame her. And having duly disposed of Anna's friend, the Princess Miyakaya got up, and together with the ambassador's wife, joined the group at the table, where the conversation was dealing with the King of Prussia. What wicked gossip were you talking over there? said Betsy. About the Kareninins, the princess gave us a sketch of Alexei Alexandrovich, said the ambassador's wife with a smile as she sat down at the table. Pity we didn't hear it, said Princess Betsy, glancing towards the door. Ah, here you are at last, she said, turning with a smile to Vronsky as he came in. Vronsky was not merely acquainted with all the persons whom he was meeting here. He saw them all every day, and so came in with the quiet manner with which one enters a room full of people from whom one has only just parted. Where do I come from? he said, in answer to a question from the ambassador's wife. Well, there's no help for it, I must confess. From the opera buffet. I do believe I've seen it a hundred times, and always with fresh enjoyment. It's exquisite. I know it's disgraceful, but I go to sleep at the opera, and I sit out the opera buffet to the last minute and enjoy it. This evening. He mentioned a French actress, and was going to tell something about her, but the ambassador's wife, with playful horror, cut him short. Please don't tell us about that horror. All right, I won't, especially as everyone knows about these horrors. And we should all go to see them if it were accepted as the correct thing, like the opera, chimed in Princess Miyakaya.